Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Enlighten Me podcast. You are listening to episode 70, and I'm your host, Mackenzie. I'm so glad that you're here today. Before we dive into today's content, I want to take a second to thank a sponsor who is helping to make this show possible. Today's show is made possible by Redeemed with Purpose Jewelry. Did you know that 40 million people currently live in slavery, with 50% of the victims being children? Redeemed with Purpose Jewelry exists to raise awareness on this fact and to empower consumers to make a difference through their shopping choices. When you purchase Redeemed, 50% of net proceeds are given away on your behalf to carefully chosen frontline charities devoted to redeeming lives. Use the link in the show notes to shop Redeemed with Purpose today and use code McKenzieN for 15% off. That's M-A-C-K-E-N-Z-I-E-N for 15% off. So today, I'm so, so excited to introduce you to my wonderful guest. I know I say that a lot, but this is someone I've been wanting to have on the show for a long time. I actually heard her on another podcast and knew I needed to get her on my show. So please join me in welcoming Sarah Jackson. Sarah runs a nonprofit called Casa de Paz, which means House of Peace, and is focused on reuniting families who have been separated by immigrant detention. She has devoted her life's work to this mission, all because she believes that we were created equally and that we should be loving those in need as much as we love ourselves. I can get on board with that mission, can't you? I wanted to have Sarah on the show to tell us about her work, but also just to educate us on current immigration practices. Most of us know a little bit about this topic, but we don't understand the ins and outs of what it's really like to be an immigrant trying to enter the United States. Now, I will give you a heads up that a lot of what Sarah shares here is looking at immigration from a faith perspective, which I think is a really beautiful way to approach it and one that probably needs to be taken more often. But even if you're not a person of faith, you're still going to learn a lot here. Today in part one, Sarah is sharing the ugly truth. Now, I'm calling it that because I think no matter where you stand, you'll see that the current system is broken and in need of change. I don't want this to be a political episode, because just like I say with so many other topics, we're talking about people's lives here. So please try to remember to stay focused on the humanity aspect of what we're discussing and not on where your political values lie. I think you're going to love Sarah and learn so much from her. I know I did. And next week in part two, Sarah and I will be talking more about her work with Casa de Paz and a little bit more about stereotypes of immigrants and how immigration really works. Make sure you're subscribed to the show so that you know when that's available. And don't forget about leaving a rating and a review too. Ratings and reviews help more people to find the show. And I think after you hear this episode with Sarah, you'll agree that more people need to know about this. I want to take a second to thank someone who took the time to leave a review. This review is from Mitch. It says, I love the various informational topics that Mackenzie has on the podcast. The podcast gave me a new perspective on a lot of global topics that I normally thought didn't pertain to me. I highly recommend this podcast for anyone interested in educating themselves on various informational topics. Thank you so much for that review, Mitch. It means so much. And truly, it only takes a few minutes to do and is more helpful than you know. So please consider leaving a rating and review while you listen, and also feel free to share this episode with friends too. Text them to say that you think they'd enjoy this content, or post online that you're listening and tag me. I would love to hear from you. Please help me to spread the word so that more people can hear this important stuff. All right, no more delaying. Let's get to the good stuff. Here is my conversation with Sarah. Okay. Hey, Sarah, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, I'm so excited to have you on. I I told you that I actually heard you on another podcast and I was like, I have to have her on my show. She's awesome. So I'm really excited to chat with you today. Can you just start with introducing yourself for everybody? Yeah, my name is Sarah Jackson. I live in Denver, Colorado, 
And I am part of Casa de Paz, which is a nonprofit that reunites families separated by ICE immigrant detention centers. And did you say you're originally from Colorado? I was born in California, and then I moved to Texas, and I was raised in Texas. Then when I was 15, I moved to Colorado. So it's kind of funny because, you know, Texans and Californians get a little bit of a bad rap here in Colorado. And so (laughs) when people find out I grew up, or when people find out that I grew up in Texas, I'll be like, but wait a minute. I mean, I wasn't born there. And then they say, well, where were you born? I was born in California. They're like, oh my gosh. So, you know, it is what it is. (laughs) Yeah, that's so funny. And so what part of Colorado are you in now? I live in Denver. Uh, I I moved to Colorado Springs from Texas, though, and then I moved to Denver about 10 years ago to start Casa de Paz. Okay, awesome. Yeah, normally when I hear about like immigration type work, I feel like I picture people being in either like Southern California or Texas. So I honestly didn't know there was like a lot of immigrants in Colorado. So I'm very intrigued to hear more about this. Can you tell us a little bit about Casa de Paz? We're going to talk, you know, all about immigration and more about go more in depth about what you actually do with Casa de Paz in the second half of the interview. But just tell us briefly how it started and what it is. Yeah, um, Casa de Paz is a hospitality home, which is about 15 minutes away from the ICE Immigrant Detention Center in Aurora, Colorado. And we have three main programs. We have our hospitality home, which is open for families who have loved ones who are detained uh, for them to stay for a few days while they're coming in from out of town to visit them. We also have our post-release support program, which uh, offers support for people post-release. So they've been released from the detention center and now they're just trying to get from Colorado to home, wherever home is Mm -hmm. for them. Maybe they have family in Florida. Maybe they have relatives in Rhode Island. Maybe their sponsor lives in South Dakota. I mean, who knows? So our volunteers come alongside them and help them get home. And then we also have our visitation program where we spend time with folks who are locked up in the detention center. All right. Very interesting. Yeah. And learning about the detention centers is kind of new for me too. So I have more questions about that. But I first just want to start with hearing about your kind of journey with learning about immigration in America. So how did you first start learning about these issues? I mean, it's something we all know a little about at least, but how did you go deeper with that? And I I know you had a trip to the border to do some work there when you were younger. Um, So can you just tell us about that? Yeah, I actually grew up not knowing much about immigrant detention. Yeah. And when I say not much, I mean like absolutely zero. I had absolutely (laughs) no idea that there were these for-profit immigrant detention centers that were actively separating families from one another. I really didn't have a sense as to why people were coming to the United States uh, seeking asylum from other countries. I ju- it just wasn't something that I thought about on a daily basis. And yeah. um, I actually was working at a church in Colorado Springs, and I was the pastor's assistant. Okay. And one of my jobs was to go through all of his emails in the morning and read them and respond to them for him. So then when he got to the office 
uh, he didn't have any emails to respond to. Um, and I, I always joke about this now. And I just, I seriously believe that's like the closest thing to heaven on earth, like waking up and having zero emails to respond to. But, uh, so one morning I go to the office, I start going through all his emails and there's this invitation from Catholic charities in there. And it's, um, it's an invitation for pastors in Colorado Springs to go down to the Mexico U.S. border to learn about immigration, but specifically as people of faith, people who are choosing to follow the words and teachings of Jesus, like what's our response? What's an appropriate response based on our faith tradition for when immigrants come to the country that we happen to live in? Mm -hmm. And so I saw the email. It looked fine. You know, I still wasn't interested. I was like, oh, it's just another invitation that our pastor is being invited to. Yeah. I checked out his calendar, our pastor's calendar. I realized that he was out of town the week of the trip. And so I was responding to Catholic Charities and I was saying, well, thanks, but no thanks. Uh, and I was just about to hit send when from the corner of my eye, I spotted at the very bottom of the email some words that I didn't happen to notice the very first time around. And those words were, all expenses paid trip to Mexico. And yeah, so suddenly I was like very intrigued about immigration. I wanted to learn everything there was. No, I didn't. I yeah. just wanted a free trip to Mexico. Um, so I asked them, I said, hey, is it okay if I go on the trip instead of our pastor? And then I'll report back what I learned and we can take it from there. And Catholic Charities took the, the you know, took the bait and said, sure, come on mm -hmm. down. And I went there and we were uh, on the border for about five days. And half the time we spent on the Mexico side of the border and half the time we spent on the U.S. side of the border, really just learning what was going on. What are the different nonprofits doing? We got to tour Border Patrol facilities. We met with pastors. We met with Border Patrol officers. We met with all, all types of people. But for me, the most impactful part of the trip was meeting the people who were really impacted by the United States's immigration policies. Yeah. So I met people who, uh, you know, I just wrote a book called The House That Love Built, which chronicles my very first trip to the border all the way, you know, eight years later to this, you know, thriving nonprofit that we have that's hosted thousands of immigrants from all over the world. And, and yeah. it's just a fantastic thing to be part of. And in the book, we introduce you to Augustine, who I met there on that trip. And he is a father of three young children and had been living in the United States his whole life. And he was pulled over for a traffic violation and separated from his family, put into one of these immigrant detention centers where he eventually ended up getting deported. And I had wow. just met him after he was deported and he was telling me you know, his, the heartbreak of that experience and, and all that he wanted to do was get back to his family. And then I also met asylum seekers who were coming from all different parts of the world, coming to the United States for their chance to ask for asylum, uh, for safety mm -hmm. from having to return to their country. And every single person that I met who trusted me enough to tell me their story, I was deeply, deeply saddened by because I just kept imagining if this was my family, if this was my mom or my dad or my brother or my sister, is that how I would want them to be treated? Mm -hmm. And the answer every single time was absolutely not. Mm -hmm. Absolutely not. I would never want my family to be treated this way. I would never want myself to be treated this way. 
And as a follower of Jesus, right, like we're told to love the Lord our God with all our heart, our soul, and our mind, but we're also told to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And I have to take that practice very seriously if I choose to follow Jesus. And so when I came back from that trip, I knew there's got to be a better way to do this. And, and what can I do to be part of a better solution and, a, and a, an opportunity to create a, a better world for all of us to live in? And, and that's how the CASA started. Yeah. Wow, that's so cool. So how did that trip and meeting these people how did it change you? I mean, I know you said you didn't know a ton about immigration, but I don't know. Did you have any views on it going into that trip? And were those changed kind of after your trip? Yeah, I, you know, growing up in Texas and, uh, you know, my family, I was raised in a pretty conservative Christian home. Yeah where we listen to Rush Limbaugh and Fox News as were kind of like our primary and only sources of information. And I am proud to say that my family has gone on a journey with me and we have widened our horizons to the sources of news yeah. and our, <laughs> our beliefs in the world. Um, so I'm very grateful for a family that continues to learn and, and grow. Yeah. But yeah, growing up in Texas and having those um, news sources just sort of constantly feeding into my brain, I really thought like immigrants, you know, I, I heard them being called illegal, right? Mm -hmm. So I, that's what I would call people like illegal if they were here without papers, which of course now I, I do not use that word to describe somebody. Mm -hmm. um, I used to think, oh, well, they're just coming here to take our jobs, right? Yeah. So in my mind, I'm a pretty black and white kind of gal. And so in my mind, I'm like, well, if they're here illegally, what you know, all you have to do is find out everyone who's here illegally, kick them all out, and then just build the wall really, really high yeah. and, and then problem solved, right. you know? So that was sort of my mindset going into the trip. And to be honest with you, after the trip, I didn't have like an overnight conversion experience. It mm -hmm. was a very slow, gradual process where I asked a lot of questions that were maybe a little bit embarrassing to me because they may not have sounded politically correct or whatever right. the case is. Uh, but I had a, a trusted group of friends who I just started asking these questions to and, and processing through it with and learning and, and meeting with people and hearing their stories and, and researching and coming up to Denver for events and movie nights surrounding immigration movies or a, a protest at the detention center, whatever I could get my hands on, I just sort of devoured it. Yeah. But really what, what ended up sort of happening was about a year and a half after the trip, I just woke up one day and it became crystal clear uh, that scripture that I mentioned earlier, which was to love our neighbor as ourself. And, and I woke up in the morning and I realized, gosh, last night I was hungry and I found, I found food mm -hmm. to, to feed me. I was thirsty and I found something to drink. I was cold. So I found a blanket, you know, and a house to sleep in. And if I love myself that much, then I must love my neighbor that much as well. And I knew that I wasn't really finding the way to do that, especially around immigration and immigrant detention centers. And so I moved close to the detention center uh, and just spent several months really in the backyard almost uh, and just sort of stayed there and started listening to what some of the needs were. And then I realized, oh my gosh, like lots of families are coming in from out of town to visit their loved ones who are locked up in this detention center. And when they get here, they oftentimes have no place to stay. They, they may not have money for a hotel, maybe, maybe not even have money for food. 
And so that could be one little part that I could play. And, and that's when I moved directly across the street from the detention center. I rented a one bedroom apartment. I called it Casa de Paz, which means house of peace. And I started hosting families in, in that apartment who were traveling in from maybe Texas, right? Like a mom and her four kids traveling in from Texas to visit their father who had uh, been detained and, and they wanted to see him again. Mm-hmm. Uh, they could come stay with me and it would kind of like the Ronald McDonald home, yeah. but for families separated by detention. And so that was kind of the, the initial heartbeat behind the house. And then we've you know grown now to having the post-release support program and the visitation program, but that's where it all, all started. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So I want to know more about the actual process of immigration because I'm much like a younger you where I just kind of hear things and I'm like, okay, that's what immigration's like, but I really don't know the details. So can you first tell me what's it like to be an immigrant from the people that you've met and the stories that you've heard? What's it like to be an immigrant who's leaving real dangers behind? Because I know we hear that a lot, but I don't really know for sure what these dangers are. So could you maybe just tell us what that's like? Yeah, I'll give you just one specific example. Mm -hmm. Uh, And Winston is a gentleman in the book that you end up meeting. And he is from Southern Cameroon in Africa. And uh, Cameroon is actually a country that is controlled by the French government. And the folks that are in the government are French speaking. And the majority of Cameroon is, uh, French, are French speakers. And there are several small sections of Cameroon where folks only speak English. And Winston is from one of those sections. And for decades, the English speakers in Cameroon have been discriminated against simply because of the fact that they speak English. Mm-hmm. And uh, they don't have access to the same medical care, the same education. They, 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 don't, they don't have the same rights as their fellow Cameroonians just because of the language that they speak. Mm-hmm. So they've been discriminated against uh, because of that. And a few years ago, they started protesting, right? Just like we see here in the United States, when you see something that you'd like to be changed, one way to change it is by taking to the streets and having your voices heard. Well, in Cameroon, um, the protesters, Winston being one of them, the government didn't like that, didn't appreciate people disagreeing with them. And so they, they literally just put targets basically on their backs and just started killing everybody who would go out into the streets to protest. And so Winston was no longer safe in his own home and he didn't have any option. I mean, he could have stayed, but he would have been killed or imprisoned and tortured and then killed. And so he made a really difficult decision to leave his home, the only place he'd ever known, and come to the United States uh, seeking asylum. Mm -hmm. And asylum is one venue that folks have, one avenue that folks have to come to the United States if they are in danger in their own home countries and their government is not going to protect them. Uh, Now, not everybody will win asylum, uh, but at least they have the opportunity and they have the the right to ask for it. And that's what Winston did is he left Cameroon. It took him three months to get to the border of California and and Mexico. And, And during that whole journey, obviously, it's very dangerous. People die along the way. But but they know that even they're willing to risk that because whatever it is that they were fleeing from is still more dangerous than risking their life to trying to find life in the United States. And so mm. he got to the to the Mexico-California border where he found a border patrol station 
and he voluntarily turned himself into Border Patrol and he asked for asylum. He said, my name is Winston. I'm from Cameroon, Africa. I'm here asking for asylum because I have a fear that if I return to Cameroon, that the government will try to kill me. So the government's response, um, our United States government's response to asylum seekers along the border is to lock them up while they wait for their hearing in front of their immigration judge. And so Winston was detained for over half a year, so seven months, um, and locked into three different detention centers, one along the border. Then he was transferred to a detention center in Arizona. And then finally, he was transferred here to Colorado, uh, where he eventually did get his day in court. And he was able to win his asylum, uh, which is uncommon. The majority of folks do not win asylum. Uh, But he was fortunate enough to be able to hire a lawyer who helped him put together a very strong case. He won asylum and he was released. I mean, if you're asking me if that's a good way, I mean, I know you're not asking me, so I'm just going to say it. (laughs) But uh, if, if, if somebody were to ask me, do you think that's the right way to treat people who are fleeing war and violence and persecution and genocide is by locking them up in a prison, then my answer is no. That is, we can find a better way to do that. I mean, I don't know about you, but my family, my, my mother's mom, so my grandma on my mom's side, she uh, was born in Poland. And during World War II, Poland obviously was invaded by the Nazis. And the Nazis mm-hmm. tried to recruit my grandfather to join their army. And he said, no, I don't want to be part of this. And so they had a target on their back as well. And they fled. They, they ran to France and they started life in France. And they were able to survive, thank God, right? Because now I'm here because of their their story of survival and and migration. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm just really grateful that when my grandmother had to flee, that she didn't flee to a country that put her up in a prison, you know? Yeah. Wow. Okay. I have so many questions. So are you saying, because I feel like I could maybe picture some people listening and being like, well, that's really sad for Winston or that's really sad that that happens or whatever. But like that can't be the norm. But are you saying that that is like that's the process is people come here, they get locked up until they have a hearing and then the hearing determines if they can be free and legal in our country or not? Is that the process? Yeah, that is definitely uh, most of the asylum seekers that I know, that is exactly their story. Now, somebody may get released on bond. So the immigration judge might give them a bond if they can prove that they're not a risk to society. They're not a flight danger. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a lot of different nuances. But yeah, that is Mm -hmm. absolutely the case. However, under the Trump administration, they enacted a lot of really harsh policies against asylum seekers in a way to basically cut off asylum in this country. And we're hopeful that under the new administration that some of those policies will be turned back. Uh, But one of them is called Remain in Mexico. And that was implemented about two years ago under the Trump administration. And it basically said, okay, yeah, if you come to the United States seeking asylum, you can apply. But while you're waiting for your day in court, you actually have to wait in Mexico, which Mm -hmm. is, you know, when you think about it, if you're fleeing war, you're probably not going to have a lot of possessions, right? So you may just have some clothes, maybe a couple pictures of your family, something very small. But then you arrive to 
find safety in another country and they say, okay, you can apply, but now you've got to wait a couple of years. Um, and yeah, you just have to wait in Mexico where now there are over 50,000 asylum seekers just along the border waiting uh, for their day in court. And those camps mm -hmm. are basically breeding grounds for criminal activity because people are preying on people who, do, who are in vulnerable situations. And so people yeah. are being kidnapped and extorted and sold into sex trafficking or drug trafficking um, on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. And to know that mm -hmm. that's happening literally across the border because of policies that our government has put in place is um, shameful to me. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and that brings up another question I had. When you started telling Winston's story, maybe this was just totally ignorant on my part, but I just assumed you guys predominantly worked with immigrants from Mexico, but do you work with immigrants from all over the world? Yeah, that's not a silly assumption. <laughs> well, maybe it is, but it's one I had too, so we can be silly yeah. together. <laughs> yeah, I actually, when I started Casa de Paz, I... I called it Casa de Paz, a Spanish word name, yeah. because I thought that everyone in a detention center was from Mexico and right. spoke Spanish, and that's just not the case. We've actually, <laughs> in the eight years that we've been open, um, we have hosted 3,170 guests from 77 countries from all over the world. People from Africa, people from Asia, people from Europe, people from... Yes, Mexico and, and Central America and South America. Mm -hmm. It's just this really fun um, experience to be able to meet people from all over the world in just one little home, you know, to think that thousands of people from all these countries have passed through the yeah. doors of our home. It's just a, a really heartwarming thing to think about. Yeah, that's, that is really cool. And my other question for you, just as you were explaining kind of how the process works for asylum seekers is do you have any idea like what percentage of immigrants are asylum seekers or at least like is that the majority because that's kind of what I assumed is why well I mean obviously there are people who just move here but what kind of percentage of people I guess that are like in detention centers are asylum seekers yeah yeah so in detention centers there are asylum seekers um, there are also folks who have been living in the United States for a variety of time. Maybe that's five years, 10 years, 15 years, and they're undocumented. Maybe uh -huh. they came here on a work visa or a student visa and overstayed their visa, and now they're undocumented. Okay. Um, and maybe just like Augustine in the book, right, where he's driving without a license and gets pulled over, and they found out he's uh, driving without a license, he's undocumented, then they can put him into a detention center. Maybe right. somebody's work was raided, whatever the case is. If somebody who's undocumented is found to be undocumented, they could be put into one of these detention centers. And then there are also folks who may have been found to be undocumented, but there's another sort of relief available to them. For example, one of the things is called a U visa, and that's a visa for somebody who has experienced a crime. They're a victim of a crime while living in the United States. So maybe they're undocumented, but potentially they were sexually assaulted or another type of crime against them. Maybe they had domestic assaults or something and they were a victim of a crime. Then there are other venues for them to apply to be able to legally stay in the United States. Um, okay. So there's a, a variety of folks that could be ending up in these detention centers. Um, but the, the majority of people that we host at the CASA are asylum seekers mm -hmm. who have just recently arrived to the United States and, and put been put into one of these uh, prisons. 
Okay, and so that leads me to a couple more questions. What do you say to people who will say, like, immigrants should come here the right way or the legal way or whatever that is? What What's your response to that? I, I totally get it, right? Like, I think we yeah. all can appreciate uh, a system that is put into place that is um, gives people guidelines on how to make that actually happen. Yeah. And so that's why I'm a big proponent for learning about how the immigration system works and then realizing the places that it's broken and then trying to work to fix it. And I think that that's right. uh, when we look at an asylum seeker who has fled genocide or conflict or persecution in their home countries and they're coming to the United States for safety and they're doing it the legal way, they're doing it the right way. And then our response is to lock them up and put them into a prison where they're being held indefinitely for not committing a crime. And then when you throw in the fact that most of the immigrant detention centers are run by for-profit prison companies, right, that, that are mm-hmm. literally profiting off of the backs of immigrants, I think immigration can feel like this huge, daunting sort of thing when you think about it. But then if you sort of drill down a little bit and you're like, well, wait, like, why is this necessary? It's not necessary. And we do not have to put people in these prisons. Then what can we do to fix it? Right. What are some alternatives Mm -hmm. to detention? What are some ways that we can encourage people who need safety to come to the United States and treat them with, you know, human dignity and respect while they're here? And so I Mm -hmm. think simply the fact of looking at the way that asylum seekers are treated is just one little piece of the puzzle. Uh, and that's sort of the piece that, that I'm focused on, at least with the folks that I get to meet through Casa de Paz. Yeah, definitely. That leads to another great question is, what are the detention centers like? Because I think that's one thing that a lot of people maybe don't realize is going on. I know I didn't. I think when I hear about you know undocumented immigrants or illegal immigration you picture people just like sneak, like tiptoeing over the border or something, like being really sneaky about it. But a lot of people don't even realize that these detention centers exist. So can you tell us what those are like and then maybe explain how they've become like a big business? Yeah. So, I mean, they're literally prisons. Okay. So, you know, when, when you are detained in one of these detention centers, then you're wearing uh, the prison uniform, which are sort of like scrub looking things. You're held mm-hmm. in a pod along with anywhere between, you know, 40 to 80 other individuals at the same time. Um, you're sleeping in cells, uh, you know, in little bunk beds that have mattresses that are like two inches thick and you can feel the metal, you know, sticking you from from the, the your bed. I mean, it's just very uncomfortable. Everything that you do in the prison uh, it, it, or is in your pod. So you eat there, food is taken to you there, uh, you sleep there, you go to um, the bathroom, you take showers, everything is done in your pod. So you're not able to leave that pod. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're not big rooms, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. They're small. So you're confined um, for up to, you know, I've met people who've been detained for four or five or six or seven years. And that's their life every day. Um, There are windows in the pods here in Aurora, uh, but the windows are blacked out. So you can't look outside. Uh, There's no access to outdoor time. So if you want to go outside and feel the sun on your skin, you can't. There's no outdoor access. And so it's a very isolating experience. You know, there's no, uh, you don't get a cell phone. You don't get to get on the computer. There aren't any additional sort of like classes that you can take, you know, to to pass the time. I mean, I don't know how it feels, but from what people have told me, it's a very hopeless experience. 
lots of boredom, uh, lots of just worry and anxiety and trauma. We're re-inflicting people's traumas on them. I mean, think about if you have just fled a war, right? And you have these images of seeing your family murdered in front of your own eyes and and watched your loved ones be raped by military soldiers. And then you're fleeing, you're literally running for your life. And then you're put into a prison when you, when you think you arrive to a country that will help, uh, but they put yeah. you in a prison and now you're locked up in a cell, you know, and, and you're just stuck with all of those memories and all of those thoughts that you're just ruminating on over and over and over again. And I think that's one of the things that is surprising to a lot of our volunteers that are involved in our visitation program is understanding that, you know, we're not social workers, we're not financial support, we're not lawyers, we're simply people who are acknowledging the humanity of that person and choosing mm-hmm. to spend time with them. And just the, uh, the, the fact that we're able to, to be with them and, and listen to them and, and then listen to us, right? And we're just being together is a way that people can feel like they're able to, to share a little bit about what they're feeling and what they're going through. And that there's a kind person who's willing to, to listen and truly cares about them, right? They don't even know who they are. They're complete strangers, but they care enough about them to be there with them. Wow. Yeah, that sounds awful and really, really sad that, I mean, they're essentially imprisoned when they didn't do anything wrong. I, that's just awful to think about. And and so why is the wait so long to get a day in court? Like, is that part of the money part of it? There's a backlog in the immigration system, um, and that's just because there are uh, not enough judges to hear all of the cases, Um, you know, and and that's a simple fix, right? Like if we stop putting billions of dollars into and millions of dollars into border patrol and detaining individuals, we could reallocate that money to hiring more judges to hear the cases to clear Mm -hmm. their dockets, to move the process along faster. But unfortunately, our government has put the emphasis on building walls and buying drones and ATVs and and weapons to militarize our border versus putting it in places like hiring more immigration judges, right? So currently Mm -hmm. right now, if you're in a detention center, uh, you're going to be waiting about a year before you have your day in front of your immigration judge. And if Mm -hmm. you're not detained, it's actually even longer. Uh, The the folks that are waiting to have their their case heard in front of an immigration judge who are not in a detention center could be waiting two or three years. Uh, And that's just sort of the the system as we know it right now because of just the incredible amount of cases that need to be heard and not enough judges to be able to hear them. Wow, that's so crazy. And so this is maybe more of like a policy question, but the point of the court case or the hearing, is that just to deem that this person is like safe to bring into the country? And why would an asylum seeker be turned away? Yeah, actually, the that process starts uh, for most asylum seekers that are coming into the country um, and presenting themselves at the border, it starts at the border. So there are asylum officers at the border who hear somebody's case and they get to deem whether or not they believe that they have a credible case. So there are Mm -hmm. several steps along the way that vet people and and hear their stories and then they go in front of the immigration judge. And yeah, I mean, they're wanting to, to hear things like 
what were the situ what was the situation that you're fleeing from what evidence do you have to show that you know your life is in danger do you have people who will testify to that um, do you have a credible witness who is from who you know who's an expert witness uh, from from the area that you fled from that can testify to some of the things that you're saying right and so the case that you have to present to the immigration judge is very complicated and detail oriented and if you make a single mistake, you know, that could throw your whole case out the window and you could be deemed uh, uncredible and then you're deported, right? So it's a very, you, you don't want to get it wrong. And without legal representation, a lot of folks do get it wrong because there are so many details. Immigration law is incredibly difficult, incredibly nuanced. Mm. And if you do not understand the law or you've never had experience in representing yourself, which most folks, most folks don't, then you're going to be stuck and yeah. more than likely not win your case and eventually be deported. And mm -hmm. so that's why representing folks in detention is so crucial and it's critical to the success. And, and when people are have, have legal representation, they are far likelier to, to win their case and then be released than if they were not to have that representation. But unfortunately, mm -hmm. the majority of immigrants that are locked up in this detention center, almost 80% of them do not have legal representation. And oh, so, wow. yeah, so that's a, and, and you know, like I mentioned earlier, they didn't commit a crime, right? So if you, yeah. if you do commit a crime here in the United States, you have access to a free legal defense uh, attorney. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah. But you don't if you didn't commit a crime. So they didn't commit a crime. Wow. So they're put into this really between a rock and a hard space, right? It's almost like you want that. I mean, you don't, you don't want them to criminalize asylum, but if they, if yeah. they were to, you know, uh, put it up to that level, then they would qualify for free legal support, but, but it's not wow. a crime. So they're, they're just kind of left to fend oh for themselves. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. The more you explain, the more it's like, wow, this is, this is real. How did we get here? Like this system is very backward. Yep. Wow. Okay. And so you mentioned that a lot of the detention centers are privately owned or they're for profit, I guess. So does that mean that businesses are making money the longer people stay or the more people that are staying? Ding, ding, ding. You hit the yeah. nail on the head. <laughs> yep. That is exactly true, right? So if you look at a, a prison company like GEO, uh, GEO is a for-profit prison company that operates actually around the entire world. They just happen to have a prison here in Aurora, Colorado. So what happens is, uh, is GEO um, has this empty prison and they've got all these guards that are ready to guard prisoners. And ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement from the United States government, comes along to, to a prison like GEO and says, hey, we've got 1,500 immigrants that we want to be detained in Aurora, Colorado. We see that you have a prison. Uh, what if we came up with a deal, right, where you've already got the prison, you've got the guards, you've got the whole system. We'll bring the prisoners to you. We'll bring these immigrants to you. You detain them and, you know, on average, we'll pay you $150 a day per person who's detained. So GEO looks at the numbers and they run the numbers and they look through it and they think, ah, oh, this is a great fit because they're going to pay us $150 per day per person that we're detaining. And it only costs us, you know, 60 bucks a day to detain somebody. So we're going to be making $90 in profit every day for every person that we detain. Yeah, of course. Sign. Where is the dotted line? Let us sign. So they have these contracts, ICE and GEO and ICE and other for-profit prison companies have these contracts with each other 
to basically, you know, lock people up and then make money off of that. So if Jose is detained for 10 days, you know, you can run the numbers and see how much profit Gio will make. But if Jose is detained for 10 months, then Gio will make more money, right? So, mm-hmm. uh, so one of the tactics that we see often used is that immigrants will be transferred around to different detention centers, and that will prolong their stay in detention because let's say that Jose has a court appearance here in Aurora for December 21st. And then December 20th, a guard comes up to Jose and says, hey, Jose, you're being transferred down to Mississippi to a different detention center. So Jose packs up all his bags and belongings and they transfer him down to Mississippi. He obviously misses his court appearance here in Colorado for the following day because he's traveling. Then they set his next court appearance to be in March of 2021. So that's three additional months that he has to be held that was unnecessary because only because they transferred him. So that's one way that we see people being detained for longer. Like at the end of the day, if, you're, if your motivation is profit, then that makes a lot of sense, right? Like you're going to do yeah. whatever it is that you can to make more money, whether that's holding people longer or maybe, you know, at this detention center, there's a commissary. So you can buy things like ramen noodles or chips or cookies or a calling card to call your family because even to make a phone call out of detention costs money. And, and when we're mm-hmm. talking about like an international phone call, call, the cost to make a call internationally when you're in a detention center can be upwards of five to six dollars a minute. And so mm-hmm. the detention centers can put an upcharge, right? So they may buy the ramen noodle soup for 25 cents, but then they'll sell it for a dollar 25. So they're going to make a dollar mm-hmm. on everything of ramen that they sell. So at any mm-hmm. point along the way, whether that's charging extra for commissary items or holding them in detention for longer or cutting costs and not feeding them healthy, nutritious food or not providing medical support, they will find ways to do it. And it's, it's smart. Like if you think about it from a business perspective, from a money making perspective, it's brilliant because then at the end of the day, you're going to make more money. Uh, But thankfully I'm very grateful that God created me with a heart that doesn't just see the profit and the dollar line. That yeah. God, God gave me the ability to see that human being for who they are, a human being mm-hmm. made in the image of God. And that's what I'm concerned about. You know, I'm not worried about how much money are we going to make off of Jose. It's like, how, how is Jose doing? Like, is he okay? What does he yeah. need? How can we make sure he's okay, right? But unfortunately, not every business has that same business model. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, I think you're just hearing about how the system works is probably helping people to look at it from a more human perspective. Because I think when we sit in our comfy homes in America, it's really easy to judge immigrants as a group rather than thinking about them individually and just say like, well, come here the legal way and you'll be fine. And it's like, even the legal way sounds horrible. Like I wouldn't want to go through that process. If I could sum up how I'm feeling right now, it would just be the mind blown emoji on the iPhone. Maybe you knew more about immigration than I did, but man, was I missing out on the full scope of the picture. 
I had no idea about how many people were seeking asylum because they were fleeing dangerous situations. And I also had no idea that the process for dealing with these people was to imprison them. How messed up is that? Again, I don't want this to be a political conversation, but I think we can all agree with Sarah that the way things are going right now just is not right. That's why I want you to make sure you tune in for part two next week. Sarah and I will be talking more about immigration and what it's like to be an immigrant, but we're also talking about her work with Casa de Paz and how we can help. I always like to make sure my listeners walk away from episodes with practical ideas on how to make a difference, and I asked Sarah for just that. So make sure you subscribe to the show so that you can listen to part two when it's available. Subscribing is free and easy. All you have to do is hit the subscribe button on whatever podcast player you're using, and that way you'll know when a new episode is available. Now, don't forget about leaving a rating and a review for the show, too, and sharing the show with friends. Let's spread the word together so that we can make more of a difference. And until next time, if you want to learn more about Casa de Paz, check out the show notes so that you can connect with Sarah, and you will also find the link to shop Redeemed with Purpose today while you are over there. And don't forget about using the code MackenzieN for 15% off. All right, friends, until next time, think about loving others as much as you love yourself. Remember to look at people over politics and keep seeking to get enlightened. Peace out. I'm